So hi, I'm Paul McGregor, mental health advocate and speaker, and you are listening to the Just Checking In podcast. Hello again, listeners, and welcome to another episode of the Just Checking In podcast. This podcast, as always, is brought to you by Ben, a place where everyone, but especially men and boys, can open up about their mental health issues, break down stigmas, and start conversations. I'm your host, Freddie Cocker, and I'm the founder and editor-in-chief of Vent. As you may know by now, each pod, I check in with a very special guest. We have a natter about all things mental health, as well as anything and everything else they are passionate about. If it helps that person with their mental health, we'll discuss it. My special guest for this episode is journalist Natalie Morris. She's a woman doing amazing things in sport, lifestyle, well-being and racial issues. She's currently senior lifestyle writer for the Metro UK and founder of Mixed Up, which is an in-depth look at people of mixed heritage, their stories and seeks to break down the stereotypes and biases that people may have about them or have had in the past. She's also written for outlets such as Gaudem, Independent, Telegraph Sport and Digital Spy. Before joining the Metro, she worked as a digital journalist for ITV News. She's also co-host of the netball podcast, The Netball Show, alongside Sasha Shipway, Andy Lamb and Zara Buck, discussing a plethora of issues that impact the game. This is how our check-in went. Natalie, welcome to the Just Checking In pod. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your working week to chat to me. First of all, I know everything with, that's going on right now is a bit is a bit of a lot for anyone to handle, but how are you managing and coping, um, not just you know with your work, but also your mental health? Um, yeah, uh, thanks for having me on, firstly. And yeah, it's um, it's really been quite a week. It's a lot, really, to, to process, um, both mm. professionally and personally. Like, um, it's quite difficult when you're a journalist and you're immersed in that kind of uh, world of news and, and you're writing about it. You're writing about racism and the protests pretty much constantly, mm. um, which is great. And it's something I really want to do and is important and is my job. But at the same time, when you have that kind of personal connection to the story mm. um, in terms of being you know, affected by racism in my own life, um, it can be quite emotionally taxing um, and it's hard to sometimes switch off from that. So it is quite mm. emotionally tiring, I would say. Mm. Yeah. Do you get time to switch off? Yeah, um, I try to. I've, I don't have um, typical crazy journalist hours, which I'm very lucky (laughs) about. Uh, very, very lucky for that. It's, um, you know, I've kind of, I've done my time doing night shifts and late shifts and weekends Mm, in the past. mm. So I feel very lucky to be, to be on pretty standard nine to five hours, which is, you know, pretty rare in in this industry. So I do try and use my weekends to, to switch off where I can and, and try really hard to, you know, step away from social media as, but I'm finding Mm. that really difficult at the moment, but I'm trying Mm. Trying to make a conscious effort, you know, little things like trying to charge my phone in in the living room as opposed to next to the bed, so that I get that mm. you know s- instant switch off where I have to have to just focus on, um, you know, my own thoughts and going to sleep. So that's a little that's quite a helpful thing to do. That's really good. Um, we've got a lot to get through, and yes. you're, you've got such an interesting story um, <laughs> to talk about. Shall we just get started? Yeah, absolutely. Let's go. The best place to start now is your career in journalism. So first off, tell me why you wanted to be a journalist, know how you got into the industry and, and how your love for writing started. Yeah, so I have to probably confess that I, I didn't always want to be a journalist. That isn't something that, <laughs> <laughs> like I wasn't like in school, like that's what I want to do. Um, it just kind of happened. Uh, at the same time, I, I think I was, I almost always saw myself as a writer more than a journalist. And I think that is mm. where my passion lies and what I've always enjoyed since I was little like writing stories and telling telling stories that's what I like to do and obviously that's a huge part of journalism so I think I basically just kind of tried to play to my strengths when I was in education and that was very much in English and literature and words and writing and through following that path I just kind of found myself in that world um, and I think as many people do you just kind of enter the world of work and opportunities arise for you and you just, you know, you take one path as opposed to a different path and all of a sudden you're, you're you know, you're in this career. So, um, yeah, I started off 
writing um, for a for the netball magazine for the England netball magazine mm-hmm. um, straight out of university pretty much um, and I was just a writer there and went on to become the editor of the magazine it was a very very small team and um, they were basically must have helped it, yeah it did help I was like <laughs> great yeah um, it was quite you know big responsibility I'd only just come out of uni and after about six months of being in the job, my boss was like, right, we're going to make you the editor of the magazine because you're a massive netball nerd and you love women's sports. So just go for it. And it, <laughs> it was kind of my my little baby. And I, I kind of built it up and with an amazing team. And I, I loved it. I absolutely loved working for Tri North and working with England Netball on that magazine. That was that was such a great kind of um, baptism of fire almost into having that mm, responsibility. A grounding. Yeah, mm, and into mm, the world of work. Mm. So that was great. And then after that, I got on the trainee scheme um, at ITV News to be the, you know, a trainee, trainee producer. Um, and I worked there for a couple of years, which was um, amazing, the most amazing experience. Um, very, very tough, very difficult, um, very stressful. <laughs> but I met <laughs> some amazing people and had some really incredible experiences. So that's kind of how it how it started for me in terms of journalism. Mm. And what were some of the biggest challenges you faced starting this journey? And what sort of challenges did you encounter as you began to achieve a bit of success too? Um, there's so There were so many challenges, I think, as you know, which is the case for anyone at the bottom of a career and, and trying to work their way up. And um, I think, yeah, one of the hardest things was um, doing the ITV News trainee scheme. Um, first of all, getting onto that scheme, the the actual process of, mm. of the mm. um the interview process was like relentless it was the hardest thing i've ever done like we had um there was thousands of applications and honestly this is not even me trying to be humble but i don't understand to this day how i how i managed to get <laughs> on like i mean it's the great thing started early <laughs> yeah i don't know it's just um I, I, it's, it felt like quite fluky to get on to be honest but i i i um yeah you had this really intense day of all these different kind of practical challenges and different styles of interviews. One was kind of a, mm. um, it was like a speed dating interview setup, which you kind of go to oh, different wow. like um, stations where you had different heads of news for all the different ITV regions. And they basically fire questions at you. And I was just sitting there sweating, like, oh my God, this is so <laughs> difficult. It was so hard. Um, so yeah, so getting through that was 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 scary um but you know also really like empowering to obviously get through and and get a place on that scheme because um the opportunities they give you are amazing and it's really competitive and sought after and um I'm really mm. grateful for the opportunities that I got from being on that scheme and the, and the practical skills that I learned as well because they teach you um uh, uh camera skills um how to write for news all these really technical practical things that you just don't, you can't learn anywhere else other than being in a newsroom and, and actually having that kind of mentorship. So that was, that was really great and really set me up well, I think. Um, but mm. one, one of the, one of the hardest things I think was uh, finding the right people um, and getting the right people around you because as great as it was, it's also a really challenging environment um, in terms of mm. it's, it's very competitive. Um, you don't necessarily have that inbuilt instant support um I found it was quite hard to find people who would um act as kind of a mentor or you know be looking out for you particularly in those early stages so I think it was you know finding those people who you could talk to and you could trust and and were going to have your back um and I think that's a really important thing in the industry across across the board and it's something that I really um you know want to do in future, as I get more, you know, experienced and more senior, I want to make sure that for those youngsters and those trainees coming through that I can be that person that I didn't necessarily have initially, if that makes sense. Mm. We just need more of that. Mm. We need more allyship and um, just supporting each other and yeah, not pulling the ladder up behind you. Mm. For sure. Was, was there a moment during these early days as a journalist where you kind of fully embraced this pathway or, or felt accepted maybe is a better word into the industry was it was there a sort of great story that you wrote that got really great feedback from an editor was it uh a, you know a compliment from a from a black female journalist that you, you looked up to was there a sort of a moment that you can pinpoint and and sort of made you feel like wow you know I'm I'm good at this and this is something I want to kind of keep doing um I think I'm still on that journey as to feeling <laughs> if I'm like definitely on the right path um no I think I I don't think there was a, any kind of like light bulb moment like wow this is definitely mm. for me I think actually to be honest I think there were a lot of 
the opposite moments where I had very crystal clear things where I'd be like, this is too hard. I can't do this. I can't <laughs> quit. Like literally there was, there's, mu- there's many more of those moments that you remember because they're the hard bits. And, and the fact that you can, the fact that you choose to come back into the newsroom the next day after having one of those days, I think that is mm. what, you know, makes you a better journalist, makes you stronger, makes you more mm. resilient. And I think mm. it's almost those moments that are more important. Um, for me, when I look back on, on what I've kind of, overcome and the and the hard bits that I managed to get past um but then obviously like the little wins have been great and there have been loads of little moments that I've been really proud of and um uh lots of things I did with ITV London specifically I really enjoyed I got Mm. to I was I was kind of um allowed to kind of do the Facebook um live reporting so I'd be out and about doing the kind of live stream reporting to camera but for the social media Mm. channels which was which was really good and a new experience and I kind of just had to swallow a lot of my fears about being on camera and about presenting um Mm. which was really challenging but so rewarding because because it was scary um and there was one I think where I was live streaming it was after the um the Olympic Games uh I think in Rio and I think all the the athletes came to London they were in Trafalgar Square and my job was to basically live stream the entire event which was went on for hours and I was basically there with my little cameraman who was you know recording the whole thing on his phone and I had a a little mic and I basically try and find things to say for like over two hours and you know interviewing different athletes as they were presented to me and it was it was really fast-paced and um and yeah, just trying to find what to say in those in those quiet moments. That was really <laughs> challenging. But yeah, I was really proud of that one. Mm. If I'm correct in saying you're of mixed heritage, is that right? Yes, yes. Um, my yes. dad's family um, so... are Jamaican and my mum is white mm-hmm. British. Excellent. Um, so breaking into journalism as a, as a woman obviously has its own set of unique challenges, but but as a black woman, did it create an additional set of challenges on top of that? And if you could say, you know, what were they and, and how did you deal with them? I think it is difficult being a, um, a non-white woman, being a black woman in journalism, because mm. Mm. It's, it's an overwhelmingly white industry uh 94% of journalism is white so that is an immediate challenge that is something that is completely out of your hands when you walk into one of those rooms and in it can make you feel as though you're like instantly on the back foot um there were so many times when I'd be in a newsroom in a meeting or just generally in the newsroom anywhere and I would look around and I would be the only non-white face or one of a, a handful of of non-white faces and it it's just it's disconcerting really um that mm. in this kind of day and age when you're in these rooms um working for these broadcasters and publications that the whole point of them is to reflect the news and what is happening in this country when the people working on that don't reflect the country um And there are stories that would really benefit from having that direct experience, people who can actually understand different perspectives and have different experiences. And when that's not being brought to those morning meetings where you don't have those diverse voices, when every perspective is from such a similar angle, people who have, you know, similar life experiences, went to similar schools um, and, you know, are all kind of friends, that really limits the kind of news and the kind of stories that we can put out and that then has a knock-on effect into what we're what we're telling the whole country um which affects like it has such a huge effect it has a massive impact we all know that the media has a huge impact in in all sorts of things in in political conversations in the way people feel about the mood of the country and I think it's really important that newsrooms are more representative of what the country looks like um otherwise really important stories and really important conversations are going to get missed or they're going to be presented in a really unhelpful way um so that was Mm. that was really challenging for me and continues to be challenging for me and I think will continue throughout my entire career until it is just made a lot 
more accessible for different kinds of people to get into journalism. Um, and that's what I think the focus needs to be at the moment. After ITN, Natalie, you moved to the Metro. Now, just talk to me a bit about that journey and those first few months. You know, did it feel like a big step up for you career-wise? And, and how did you adjust to that level of responsibility and, and, and some of the stories you were writing about? Um, yeah, so I uh, felt like it was time to move on from ITV. And I, I, I did, there was so much of that that I enjoyed. But like I said earlier, um, I always have felt like I am a writer as much as I am a journalist so I wanted to go back into print and into writing well digital but writing essentially um mm. and so it just felt like the right move at, at the right time and um in terms of a, a step up it didn't feel like a a step up as really it felt more like a, a step sideways um mm. but what I thought was was great um from the off was the kind of autonomy that I was given at Metro from the very beginning in terms of pitching my own ideas um, and the kind of topics that I wanted to write about. So I'm a I'm the I'm a senior lifestyle writer at the Metro at the moment. And so lifestyle's really broad, right? So I was like, well, what does that even encompass? But and it really it can be it can be so many things. And and my focus is I write a lot about race and racism. I like I write about women's issues. I write about mental health, um, at careers, and also kind of a lot of fitness focused stuff as well. And which is quite a, a a bit of a random mix of things, but that has been absolutely fine. And I've been able to kind of push with all of those topics um, with equal kind of vigor. And anything that I've really wanted to um, really delve into, I've been given that space and I've been given the scope to go and do that and the time to do that. Um, and I've really appreciated that. And that has been, I think, the biggest difference um, moving from a big broadcaster over to a digital platform is that kind of creative freedom. And that's what I was mm. really missing. So it's it's really great that I, I feel like I've got that now. Mm. Let's talk about the Mixed Up series, which mm. is how you and I first came across each other. Now, you interviewed two of my friends and previous Just Checking In pod guests, Fry Hallam and Robert Parks. Um, how did the series come about? Why were you inspired to tell these stories? Uh, and what did you want to achieve with it? You know, apart from Fry and Rob, what other people have you uh, interviewed as well? Yeah, so Mixed Up um, was my first series that I ran um, for the Metro. It was actually part of how I got the job, I think, because I pitched it in my interview. I had to come to my interview with ideas, and and that was one of the things that that I came up with. Um, so I basically started it almost immediately after I joined, which was quite daunting to like immediately start in a new job in a kind of new-ish industry and role um and then you know be launching this this big project all on all on my own so um but it was it was great and uh yeah the reason I I started it was because it's something I haven't really seen elsewhere um there there isn't so much discussion about the mixed race experience on a um kind of national platform like I, that's just something that I haven't seen and something that I think when I was younger I would have really uh, appreciated having and appreciated reading and given the messages that I was getting from people who were saying similar saying that you know it was really relatable that they um, they had always thought they were alone in certain things they were feeling and that this series has shown them that they're not I think that is literally the whole point of why I wanted to do it um it basically is an exploration of um, what it means to be a mixed race in the UK today, because I think so much of that conversation gets isn't well communicated, particularly in mainstream media at the moment. I think it's, you know, mm. there's, there's such a limited understanding of what it even means to be mixed race. I think a lot of people assume that there's only one way to be mixed, that you have to be black and white um, and that other people other kinds of mixes just don't really count or you know there's there's not as much visibility um also there's issues around the privilege that mixed race people have in terms of their proximity to whiteness um the kind of relationship between how you identify like you know as a mixed race woman is it okay to identify as black is it okay to identify as mixed race where does that come in and how do you you know use your privilege for good as well um and also different issues around you know fetishization and this kind of mm. weird 
obsession that people have. Um, and, you know, you see it in adverts and um, all sorts of media campaigns where they will use mixed race people and, and hold us up as kind of this new weird pinnacle of of beauty and coolness and I think it's just it's incredibly problematic so much of that this kind of picking and choosing of their you know the choice um features of blackness that they they want to use to elevate their whatever campaign they're using but you know without looking any deeper um and without feeling too kind of um as if we're too too far over onto that kind of scale of blackness. Mm. So we're, we're kind of put in this, in this in-between space. So the, there's so much to it and there's so much to talk about. And, and the two, the two guys um, who I've spoken to um, f- from, from your podcast as well were absolutely brilliant and had so much, um, you know, fantastic insight for their own personal experiences. And that's what I wanted to get at just hearing people's individual stories as well, because th- the whole issue with, the mixed race experience is that there isn't one experience every mix is a different experience there are different contextual elements that make it um you know one mixed race person's experience completely different from someone else who has a different um you know mix of heritages grew up in a different place in the country um looks different all these kind of different things and um i found it fascinating to put those all together and then kind of pick through them and see the kind of recurring threads that came through all of them that kind of suggests to me that there are these unifying elements of being mixed race regardless of these of these big contextual differences so I did really find that fascinating and yeah so happy with the response to to the series because it's been brilliant. Mm. One question I was keen to ask you about Natalie is is pigeonholing Mm. now I often see black journalists or journalists from minority background complain that they are often asked by editors or, or receive submissions purely to write about issues pertaining to race. Now, for the listeners who aren't educated on this topic, why is it problematic? You know, have you ever encountered this yourself? And, and also, was it something you feared might actually happen to you after you launched the Mixed Up series? I think that's a really interesting question. And it's something I do think about a lot. And um, I, d- I did worry about it as well, because you don't want to just be that token brown face or black face at an organization who is wheeled out mm. to to kind of talk about these issues and to be the organization's representative on on black issues or BAME issues or whatever um because it can really reduce what's going on and and also black journalists brown journalists ethnic minority writers have so much more scope than that we can write about everything um, in the same way that white writers can, like there should be no difference there. Mm. Um, and I do, and it does happen far too often. And I think it, it comes down to the editorial decisions of editors, um, who are not allowing, um, black and minority journalists to, to pitch those ideas and to, to come to them with ideas that aren't about race. And I think that there has to be that space for us to write about both that just has to be because we have so much to offer in 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 so many different um different elements of life obviously um but at the same time mm. for me personally um race is something that I want to write about um I feel compelled to write about it um because it's it is a big part of my own experience and the experiences of the people of color in my life as well um and it's something that I I do want to do and and I worry that um sometimes that that almost that it looks how it looks in terms of oh like I'm I'm jumping on that trend as opposed to actually writing about something that is important to me. Um so it's mm-hmm. it's a difficult one because I don't feel like I have been pigeonholed. I I write about sport, I write about all aspects of lifestyle in in my job. Um but but race is something I want to write about as well. And and I think it it should be the case that we can do both essentially. Um, And Mm -hmm. I I think I I am also privileged in the fact that I have a staff writing job, a permanent staff job. So I'm going to always be afforded more flexibility in terms of what I'm writing about. And I think where that pigeonholing um, really comes into play is for freelancers who are pitching stories. Um, And I think, again, that then that responsibility falls on editors to allow writers of colour to the space to write about more than just racial issues. 
Mm, for sure. Let's move on to something which is more current, but has a racial element for sure to it, um, which is COVID-19. And we've mm. seen stories emerging how it disproportionately is affecting uh, black people and other ethnic minorities. You know, last week, Public Health England published a major report into this and found major inequalities between the mortality risk posed to black people and ethnic minorities as, as, as opposed to, to white people. Firstly, mm-hmm. you know, what was your initial reaction to the report's findings? And, and secondly, did it, did it impact your mental health as a black woman sort of navigating London whilst this pandemic is going on? Yeah, I mean, it's just another kind of layer to add to this absolute, you know, minefield of terrible information, isn't it? And um, I think it's really hard to digest as a, as a minority. Um, I didn't feel, um, you know, worried for myself, but I feel worried for um, family members um, who, you know, fall into that category, who are older, who are maybe more vulnerable. Like that is a, a genuine concern that we now have to live with on top of, you know, just the general anxiety of living in a, living through a pandemic as well. So there is that kind of um, extra stress there that, we're now all facing mm. and I think in terms of my own mental health it it was it was just disappointing I think um it's more mm. that kind of additional burden of 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 just seeing like the effects of systemic racism play out before your eyes like which is so, like mm. so, so tangibly like that I think that was really um really hard to witness and just demoralizing because it was just yeah it's just a reminder that we still have so far to go and, and, and the inequalities like that we know that we know exist in um, in the UK. We know that they're there, but I don't think we've ever seen it so starkly in black and white, literally like in charts on Twitter and on the news, like seeing those kind of death rates and the figures and the numbers. Mm. I think that was a um, something so tangible compared to this abstract idea of racism and inequality to see it physically presented like that is um yeah it's tough it's it's stark mm. we can't do this pod natalie without obviously talking about the current events which are taking place in america that was mm. ignited through the killing of american citizen george floyd a, a black man from minneapolis in minnesota at the hand of the police now you wrote an article in the metro recently about the damaging psychological impact that constantly having to explain racism mm. on a black person's mental health where you, you spoke to a range of black voices, including fellow journalists and ITV newsreader Charlene White and Professor mm-hmm. uh, Bina Candola, who's a psychologist and co-founder of diversity consultancy uh, Pern Candola. It's a fantastic read and I'd recommend anyone listening to it, listening to this pod to go give it a read and we'll put a link in the description of the pod. For anyone who hasn't read the article, just, just explain this idea you talked about, you know, what your contributors told you and, and the mental health implications these protests and other events have had and will have not on just black people in America, but across the UK and beyond. Yeah. So this is an article um, on a topic that I think about quite a lot. And and it seems to have really resonated um, with a lot of people of colour. Um, it's basically the idea that the, the, the psychological and emotional toll that comes with having to explain why something is racist um which is something that happens so frequently in 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 my life in mm. in the life of you know all people of color that i know it's something i hear again and again from people and it's you know and and i don't it's one of those i guess microaggressions that pe- i don't think a lot of people realize just how exhausting it is to have to do that and how um like demoralizing it is again because it's it's this kind of assumption that first of all it's your job as a as a minority to do the educating here that it's your job to kind of tell people how these inequalities work and where they need to do better and and where they've gone wrong um but having to do that when it's something that directly relates to your own um position in society and and that is it's an exhausting thing to have to do and it's also just it's upsetting really because you just think how do people how have people not thought about this before how have people not 
notice this, what a privilege it is to, to go through your life and not have to think about racism, something that, you know, affects people of colour every day and something they have to live with. And they have to know these things. They have to understand how these structures work. Um, where So mm. when someone comes to you and is like, oh, like, is that is that a racist thing? Like, I don't, I don't get that. Like, can, like, why is that racist? Um, and then they expect you to be the one to tell them why. It's like, well, how about you use your position of privilege to go find out yourself. Like, you know, Google, mm. Google exists. So why put that additional burden on someone who is also already living with the burden of living in an unequal system and living with the effects of racism that shouldn't be on us, that shouldn't be on people of color. And I think it it's down to white people. It's down to the majority to be proactive and to educate themselves and to use their privilege and their privileged position um, to, to go and find out, to go and find out these things. People need to um, be proactively aware. Mm. My next question is sort of split into two parts here. So first of all, do you think building on what you've just said, there's a relationship with this mental fatigue and this almost societal PTSD that many black people have said they live with, whereby incidents of racism that are, you know, that happen in the, that happen in the mainstream and, and are posted across the media are actually triggering and create this pressure and fear upon them when they are just kind of going about living their day-to-day lives. And also as a secondary point, you know, for people listening to this pod who have who have heard what you had to say and, and want to learn more, where would you recommend them go to or what or what books to read perhaps? Not just for those wanting to learn about racism and, and, and pain in the black community, but also hopeful, light and optimistic stories written by black authors as your as your latest Metro article champions. Yeah, I mean, I guess well first of all, um I think that what you said there about like the kind of PTSD symptoms, I think that's that's a real kind of risk and and there are kind of studies that are out at the moment saying that there's going to be like a a tidal wave of um mental health issues when when covid is all over and when we come out of lockdown and I think for um BAME minority communities that's only going to be bigger that the impact of that is going to be huge because already um minority communities are being so disproportionately affected by coronavirus in terms of financially, um, in terms of their careers, they're more likely to have unstable jobs um, that, you know, and and then also the direct impact of the health implications and and being more, you know, more likely to die, essentially, like that's going to weigh on their mental health. And I do think in the long run, we're going to see a lot of people really, really struggling with their mental health and um, yeah, uh, people of colour particularly. In terms of the education and what people can do I I think there are so many resources out there at the moment it's so easy to to find things um to to read and and how to educate yourself um some of my favorites uh at the moment I've read Akala's book Natives I think that's a fantastic place to start in terms of understanding um colonial history and the history of this country um equally uh Reniedo Lodge is uh why I'm a longer talking to white people about race um which everyone should read and also listen Mm, to her podcast as well because that's brilliant too um and yeah i've uh, my myself and my my colleague fimer we produced a whole series um a few months back for metro called the state of racism which was a really kind of in-depth look about where we are with racism in this country at the moment, because I think there are still so many people, you you know, look at any, any race related posts on Twitter and you'll see, see the comments saying, but the, but the UK is not racist. We're not a racist country. It doesn't exist here, you know, and, and act like it's, it, it, it isn't real, which is absolutely baffling to me. Um, so we produced a series of articles that to get to the bottom of this and to get you know underneath this kind of claim that the UK is somehow better or less racist and basically the finding is that no it's not less racist there's still a lot of racism here <laughs> unsurprisingly that was what we found out but um yeah that that kind of looks at all different elements of uh of racism in the UK from you know within the NHS in the schooling system within the police and you know and then other kind of psychological features about how you know how microaggressions are affect you and like you said about the psychological burden of explaining racism so yeah I would suggest going to going to read those articles because um yeah they're they're very informative 
excellent and just a final question on this topic Nat Mm -hmm. for anyone listening who might be thinking of getting into writing or journalism especially if they are young black girls or women what message or advice would you give them and and what perhaps peers would you champion or some fellow um, black journalists that you can shout out uh my advice would be to just keep writing just write 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 your own blog write on twitter um find places that will you know use your yeah at your education where you are at university if you have a magazine get involved it as a newspaper get involved I think the key thing for me is always just keep doing it even if you're not at the place where you're getting commissions or you're getting you know that that big big platform because it all really helps in terms of your experience and also just more importantly your confidence um and then when when those opportunities do arise you'll you'll be ready you'll be ready to go because you've already kind of been doing it um I would shout out massively to Galdem, obviously, and um, I think everyone should be reading them and going on their website, not just people of colour, and also signing up to their membership scheme as well, because you get all these amazing benefits on email if you um, sign up to be be a member. And the people who write for Galdem, Charlie Cuff and um, uh, Liv Little, who kind of, who founded, who founded it, they are incredible and they are relentless champions of black journalism and um, black women in the field. And they have, they are just basically producing groundbreaking work on a daily basis. And they also gave me kind of my first shot in the industry. And they were the first people who um, published me on a kind of big scale a few years back which was an amazing opportunity for me and gave me so much confidence so um definitely pitch to them if if you're wanting to get involved we've spoken about natalie the journalist now i want to delve a little bit deeper and talk about your own journey natalie so first of all just talk to me about your early life your teenage years where you grew up and and whether looking back there were any sort of early mental health experiences you can pinpoint you know who's the Natalie we meet here (laughs) um okay well I am a northerner living in London currently but I grew up in Manchester um and yeah I played netball for a lot of my youth that was kind of the key (laughs) thing that I that I did um and I I yeah I I grew up with my little sister and um my mum and my parents split up when I was about seven um but they've always kind of had a really good relationship and we're a really close family um so that has Mm. always been a really positive thing for me and I think I don't think there were any kind of in my early like childhood years like any mental health kind of issues that I that I can remember I was I was quite an anxious kid I guess in terms of I needed Mm. a lot of reassurance and um you know I I had this thing where I would constantly ask people ask my mom if like uh, if she when I was really little I'd ask my mom like are you are you happy with me are you happy with me like I needed her to um always tell me that she was like my friend and still liked me so I think that's a probably an early signal of of the anxiety that was that was to pop up later in my life um Mm. but it wasn't anything that um that was a massive that was a massive issue for me I loved school um I wasn't I wasn't popular but I wasn't a nerd I was like happily in the middle with my with my little friends um Mm. and yeah we just kind of muddled through I, I really really enjoyed um my childhood when I look back on it yeah Mm-hmm. we we get to university now was was this something you felt prepared for and, and what were the experiences that you had at university that that shaped the person you are today um I was I felt like I was very much prepared for university um I went to um a girls grammar school that was very very academically focused and everything I'd mm. done since year seven was about getting me to university and getting me on that good course and and that was kind of everything I'd worked towards so I felt ready for it and then but then when I was there it was actually quite different and I think because my school had been so academically focused they'd almost spoon-fed me quite a lot so then when I went to university and it was like independent learning and you just have to go off and, and research and which is all great and that is how you should learn but I wasn't ready for it and I wasn't used to it and I was like what what is happening and I remember I didn't get a very good mark for my first um, essay in my first seminar I got like a I got like a 60 or something a 60 percent and I was like a bang on a two one <laughs> yeah just just like scraped it and I remember like looking at it and being like what is happening because I was so used to just like 
being like an A star student in English, mm. like, and all of a sudden I was in this big, um, I, you know, in this big pool of all the everyone who had been the best person in their English class was suddenly in this room with me. So I was no longer the best person in the English class, and that was quite that was quite jarring. Um, but I mm. got used to it quickly and, and adapted, and um, yeah, and again found my netball family when I was at when I was at university. <laughs> that was when I think back to university. I don't even think about my course. I think about netball. I'm like that was what I did. 90% mm. of the time while I was there I was like completely <laughs> immersed in the in the netball life in the sporting life of the university and and um and that was the best thing the best thing I did because I've got lifelong friends from that netball team and I, I loved every second of it mm. I've got a friend who's um, a massive netball player and hopefully I'll send this pod when she listens to it so if she's listening she knows who she is Brilliant. um after after university you moved from your hometown Manchester to London for work now you're in a big new city you probably didn't know too many people um how did you adjust to this period of your life and, and the challenges it brought about yeah it was actually quite a crazy time um I well, so after I graduated, um, I, I then did a master's. So I had a year at home um, while I was, because I did the master's in, in Salford so I could commute from from home. So that was that was probably a really big um, transition for me in terms of going from having this full independent life in Sheffield to suddenly being back in like my teenage bedroom and having my mum being like what do you want for dinner and all this I felt like I'd just regressed and like the three years that I'd evolved and become an adult at university were kind of all just wiped away from me within over one summer where everyone graduated um so I think that was that was really really difficult and I think part of and I, I love being at home and I have a great relationship with my mum and it was nothing about that it was more the um the loss of the life that I'd had at university and the fact that it was so sudden. So I think that played a big part in moving to London because I felt like I needed to do something big to go and achieve something. And I didn't really know what that was, but it mm. felt like London was the answer. <laughs> mm. We spoke off air about what you wanted to talk about in this topic, Natalie, and, mm. and your experiences with, with health anxiety came up, which yeah. developed after you graduated. Just tell me a bit about this period of your life. What, what do you think triggered it? And how were you supported? And most importantly, you know, how did you feel in that moment? So, yeah, this was um, like a really hard period. And I think it it really was kind of exacerbated by that year when I moved home after I graduated. And I think that's a really common thing for people who um, to experience health, health, mental health problems after graduating from university. Because like I said, everything from year seven in my life had been about that academic progress and, and passing this exam and then passing this exam and then getting to university. And then all of a sudden I've graduated and there's no more structure. There's no more plan in place. And I'm just kind of on my own. And I think I found that really hard to, um, to deal with. Um, so that year, basically I just became obsessed with my own health, like my physical health, um, to a completely irrational point that was unmanageable and ridiculous. Um, and looking back now in hindsight, I can kind of track it to the summer before where I'd gotten really quite ill, like actually ill. I'd had like this really bad virus. I think my doctor thought it was like viral meningitis. And I basically the entire summer, I was basically bed bound. Like I didn't really, I don't think I left my house for like a month. Like it was ridiculous. I just had this awful headache and um, just felt just really, really, really run down for ages, for weeks. It took me a really long time to get over it. And I think because that was maybe the first time I'd been properly ill like that, it really shook me. And after that, I started getting really um, nervous every time I would get a headache or a, or a twinge or every time I didn't feel great because I was like, it's the same thing again. I'm going to be, I'm going to be ill for months now. Mm. Um, and that was um, it. And it just spiraled from there really. Um, and before I knew it in that, in that year when I was at home, I was literally googling symptoms for every kind of condition constantly I convinced myself I had everything I convinced myself I had every kind of cancer that I had HIV that I had these kind of neurological diseases these muscle wasting diseases it's ridiculous like even now I can I know like all of the symptoms to so many different illnesses because I did so much intense research about it and I would I would check my entire body for 
for changes or spots or lumps or anything that looked different and I would obsess over it um and I would also I would need constant reassurance I would I would go to my mom and I would say what's this what's this why do I feel like this and 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 ask her over and over again to to reassure me and tell me that I wasn't unwell that I wasn't dying or whatever it was that I thought was happening and same with my friends I had friends who were medics who were studying medicine I would like bombard them with these questions and it it was really short-lived the kind of um the gratification I got from from that reassurance it would last for I'd be like okay cool I'm fine I'm fine but it would only last for late for like a day and then the next day something else would pop up um so that it was just really hard and I think um it was maybe my way of coping with all the uncertainty that was happening in my life in terms of not knowing what to do after university and and I think I just I poured all of that anxiety into my health as almost like a way of not having to think about the other stuff which is completely unhelpful I don't know why my brain did that because it just didn't help so um yeah that was that was really really hard and eventually my my GP at home um, was so great and I because I was going to see him all the time again for the reassurance and one one of the times he was just like right what is actually going on here like I don't think the problem here is that you've got this weird rash on your leg and you're scared it's whatever I think what's actually happening is you're like ridiculously anxious and he gave me some medication he gave me beta blockers to help with um, the rushes of adrenaline and um yeah. And I also, I think I had therapy at that point. I'm trying to remember now when I did, but yeah, I had, I had CBT and talking therapy um, and that really helped. So yeah, I think the key, the, the key turning point for me was, was actually realizing that it was the anxiety at the root of it. And once I knew that it changed everything. So those, those mm. fears and those thoughts still kept popping up and occasionally, even now, they still pop up. But now I have this underlying knowledge, this certainty, this realization that it is anxiety that's that's at the root of it. And once I had that, I almost knew that it, it could never get to that spiraled point of sheer panic again. It just couldn't get that far, if that makes sense. Mm. Yeah, for sure. If there's anyone listening to this pod now and, and might be struggling with health anxiety, you know, mm. what what message or advice would you give them from your own experience about how they can how they can cope or how they what they can do to sort of help themselves get better? Yeah, I think it's a really hard one and it's funny talking I've never actually spoken to anyone about this before like re- like hardly anyone, so it's really been quite cathartic speaking about it. So, I would encourage other people to do this. Um, but also I think have an understanding that it's not something that you just cure or that will just go away. Um, I've mm. had to come to the realization that it's something that I now have to manage and monitor. Um, and it's something that whenever I'm feeling particularly anxious or stressed can pop up. So I've had, I've had like, um, you know, f- resurgences of this, this health anxiety at, at different periods in my life. Um, for once when I once when I first started at ITN and on the trainee scheme, because obviously that was a highly stressful time in my life. And I ended up having a panic attack when I was in the, in the House of Commons <laughs> doing, doing a story and I had to go into the <laughs> bathroom and like splash water on myself and thought I was going to pass out. I was like, this is bad timing, pull it together. Um, so yeah, so I do have to um, just keep a check on that. And I think the the key thing is maintaining that understanding that of what is at the root of it. Um, and also reaching out and just getting help and knowing that mm. it is a, it is a, like a valid condition. I think health anxiety is one of those kinds of anxiety. It's less trendy. People don't really talk about it. It's a bit embarrassing. Mm. It's also still a bit of a joke, like, oh, you're such a hypochondriac and everyone says they're a hypochondriac. And I'm like, no, no, I'm a hypochondriac, like li- like literally. <laughs> um so I, I think it's there might there is some like shame about it. It's quite an embarrassing kind of thing to admit to that you're like obsessed with your own health. Like it's also feels a bit to me it's always felt a bit selfish, like get over yourself, like there are bigger problems. Um, so I think if you're if you're feeling like that, just know that there are so many more people who have been through this than you maybe think because people aren't talking about it. Um, speak to your doctors, speak to your GP. 
they will know what it is. They will not have, they will not think you're a weirdo. Um, so I, I wish I'd done that even earlier. So I think that was the most helpful thing for me. We talked about Natalie Morris, the journalist and the person. I'm guessing this will be the most enjoyable part of the pod for you now, which is the sport of netball. So first of all, just tell me about how you got into it. Who was the first person who took you to your first training session or your local club? And and how did that love of netball begin? <laughs> well, I've already kind of sprinkled netball into every other answer on this podcast. <laughs> so that's that you kind of get an impression as to like how obsessed I am. Um, but yeah, it's just it's just been something I've always done forever. I can't even tell you like a how I got into it story because it's just always been there literally since I think I was about seven years old and it was just something everyone did at school every every woman in the country plays netball at some point throughout their schooling life and I just I just carried it on I just ran with it I was like yep this is for me this is my sport I love it um and it's just always been a feature of my life um every single stage school um university I played for my county I played for a club um and now I play as an adult in in this in the London league which I absolutely love and sport is literally I think one of the biggest loves in my life and it's it's what is actually the thing I miss the most in this in this lockdown oh, mm. no I can't say that I miss my family the most obviously but I also <laughs> I also ha- like miss netball a lot and I miss my teammates um so yeah it's just it's a it's a real release for me um netball is the place in my life where I get to be truly like angry and expressive and passionate um and it's completely allowed it's encouraged like I'm supposed to you know <laughs> try and knock other girls over and um I think it's my it's my it's my outlet for all of those frustrations and it's also the place um it, that is my kind of mental release because it's the only kind of time in my life where you're literally you're forced to be mindful when you're playing sport like you there is literally no other space to think about all the other stuff that's going on in your life you're not thinking about emails you're not thinking about work you're not thinking about money or the future or even what you're going to have for dinner you're thinking about the fact that there's a ball flying towards your face and you have to catch it or you're thinking about you need to run over there and you need to be faster than the girl who's next to you and I think that's such a rare and amazing thing to have as an adult in this you know this hectic busy world that we live in to have you know a couple of hours every week where your focus is on something so physical and tangible and you're not in your own head that's something that I I find so useful Mm. let's talk about the netball show now which is um, a podcast that you run alongside um, Andy Sasha and Zara Um, so just tell me about how did it start you know how did you get involved with it what issues do you cover in netball and and how that sort of relationship with with the four of you sort of you know grew and and is 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 today yeah um, well it's all down to Andy Andy Lamb he's the he's the brains behind this whole operation and he takes on you know the majority of the legwork in terms of editing the show and, and pulling it together and doing all the technical stuff so massive massive props to Andy for for you know having this idea and bringing us all together because we wouldn't be able to do it without him but yeah the netball show has been um such a massively positive experience for me and um I love being able to contribute to the world of netball media because it's something that we don't have a lot of it's not you know we don't pop up that often in the national press so I think it's really important for those of us who are in the media and are you know advocates for women's sport you know do speak up and and create these platforms for the netball family to enjoy and to share um and you know it's been it's been great and we've achieved so much since we started in 2016 when we were we were the only netball podcast that existed so you know since a couple more have popped up which is great you know the more the merrier I love to see netball being spoken about on every every level um but yeah we even last year we oh was it earlier this year Recently, we got um, <laughs> <laughs> nominated for a, um, a a British Sports Journalism Award as well, which was absolutely amazing because we were up against um, podcasts from the BBC, huge, huge podcasts with um, huge stars involved. And and I think about the fact that it's me, Andy and Sasha and Zara, and we're volunteers and we do this just literally because we love it for no money, for nothing. Um, 
to be to be elevated up on on the same kind of level as those huge huge BBC big dogs that was like that was a massive massive um achievement for us and we were we were really really proud but in terms of the the stuff that we cover about netball we we just cover everything so we cover the Super League, we cover the international game, we try and talk to um, as many players as we can. Uh, I think one of our one of our key things and one of my key things um, from when I used to do the Netball magazine as well was um, that I wanted the players to to be stars, to be household names in the way that other, um, other athletes are, because I think that's a really important thing for moving the sport forward and for increasing the profile as well so we try we try and elevate the profile of of different players but we also talk about um grassroots issues and and people like weekend warriors like me and my teammates who play every weekend and dedicate massive parts of their lives to to playing netball um and the kind of issues that that concern them as well um we did a special episode um just a couple of weeks ago about motherhood and netball and and the kind of support and lack of support that's there for for women who have who have had a baby and are trying to get back to their sport and the challenges that were there so that was really fascinating um so yeah that's the kind of thing we we like to talk about but it's a it's a great podcast and if you like netball please do give us a listen Excellent. We'll put a link uh, in the description of the pod to where you can listen to the netball show as well. Um, before we move on to that issue you talked about uh, regarding fertility, Nat, I just wanted to talk about the Commonwealth Games gold medal match between hmm. Team GB and Australia. Now, for those who don't know, in April 2018, Tracy Neville's Team GB beat Australia in the very last second of their gold medal decider, courtesy of uh, Helen Houseby, and is one of the best sporting moments I've probably seen in this country in the last five years just for pure drama and ecstasy alone and I mean the commentary yeah. is just ridiculous <laughs> where were you when that happened you know what impact did it have on you and and just sum up how big that a moment that was for netball as a sport it was the biggest moment the biggest ever moment for netball so far it was it was honestly unbelievable and I, I honestly would I would relive that so many times I would happily watch that final once a day because it was like the best sporting thing I've ever seen. And I think it's um it was made all the more special because I've been involved in netball in terms of monitoring the kind of um, international game for like so many years and to see it progress to that point, that was like the pinnacle of everything that the the players and and everyone who's been working behind the scenes has kind of um been pushing for to see that kind of come to fruition was amazing so where was i i was in my living room kneeling on the floor like a like a maniac with my headphones plugged into the laptop because it was about four o'clock in the morning because it was in it was in Australia so we had we all had to watch it at stupid o'clock and I was on Twitter and every single person on my netball Twitter world was online and <laughs> tweeting incessantly and we were all kind of in it together at like 4am on our own and my boyfriend was asleep in the bedroom next door and I was just literally like screaming in the living room on my own like a maniac but yeah watching that um it was it was phenomenal it was just a ridiculous ridiculous moment and you've probably all seen you know that that clip where they all dive on each other um after Helen mm. scores that that last second goal and that's the thing as well you couldn't even you couldn't even write drama like that like they won by one goal in the last second like when does that happen in terms of like just the perfect kind of sporting drama I just loved how it all mm. played out it couldn't have it couldn't have gone any better um but yeah mm. it, was, it was a huge moment for netball it really elevated the sport we were on I say we the England netball team were on um like BBC breakfast they were on the front covers of newspapers like it was a huge deal and, and for someone who's been you know plugging away uh uh netball in the media for years and and pitching netball stories and being told literally no one cares about that to see that that was um that was a, a huge huge moment and so encouraging so really encouraged for the future of the sport and I'm just really hoping that um COVID doesn't have too much of an impact because it is going to be women's sport that take the brunt of the fallout on this and I, I really hope that they're able to bounce back and, and be resilient because it would be such a shame if all the progress kind of slips back Mm. let's let's talk about that that episode you did about fertility now Nat. Mm. um so for, it's for for people who, who don't know it's quite a, a, a taboo subject in the game perhaps something even more stigmatized than than mental health amongst female players is, is that correct i think so yeah i think it's a um i think this is across the board um in women's sport in general as well because um 
there's just such a huge lack of research on this on the Mm. topic and and I think I think this is because sports science generally is so focused on male athletes no one has put any funding or time into researching that you know the specific the specific elements of being a female athlete and what goes what goes on in 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 the female body when they're pushing to to that elite level of sport and I think um so th- so basically it came up because there was this incredible uh fertility series that was published by um Aus- the Australian um netball uh platform called Netball Scoop um and they they did a really in-depth deep dive into fertility and elite netballers which was so fascinating and just made me think why on earth haven't anyone spoken about this before this is a this is a sport for women by women and yet these you know really important um health issues that affect women specifically aren't being brought up I've played netball for you know 20 25 years and never once has anyone spoken to me about um about you know the health of of fertility and your menstrual cycles and how that is affected if you're if you're training too hard and you know the dangers of of what happens if your periods stop because you because you're not taking mm. on enough calories after training and and how that could have an impact long term and i think one of the really interesting elements of that story was the fact that uh young athletes are often put on um on contraception very early on taking the contraceptive pill because mm. it can it can suppress um like premenstrual symptoms and and stop you getting your period which is obviously helpful if you're a young athlete and you want to perform to your best you don't want to be you don't want to be bleeding and you don't want to have cramps and you don't want to have all the other symptoms that can come along with um with having a period that can hinder your performance i completely get that but at the same time those athletes are not being told about the risks of doing that about what can happen further down the line how it can how it can you know limit your chances of being able to get pregnant which is a huge um a huge consequence for many women and I think something that would change how people approached it if they knew about that and I think those conversations aren't being had and that was really really shocking to me um there's also this kind of culture that I think not necessarily only in netball but across the board in in women's sport that um, elite women's sport that is that if your your periods stop because you're training so hard that's a good thing that means that you're you're training really hard and that's great and you know you're you're a bit of a machine and you're a warrior and if they come back maybe that means you've you've put on a bit of weight or you're not working hard enough and I think that that is so skewed because if your periods stop that's that's a, that's a warning sign that's your body telling you that you don't have enough energy in your body for your body to do what it needs to be doing um and that should be something that you're then taking into account and personal trainers and and coaches should be working with female athletes to make sure they they're taking on enough nutrients and enough calories to sustain the level of training that they need to be at so that that doesn't happen to them so i think that that's a real problem and something that really needs to be addressed and just yeah just shocking to me that these conversations aren't being had and i think we need to do more to talk about them mm. Just, just as a as a two part question here, Nat. Just building on what you've just said, um, mm-hmm. you talked about this juxtaposition where female athletes in their prime often have to decide between being a mum and starting a family or, or continuing on that athletic journey. Now, there are of course a couple of exceptions, like Serena Williams um, and and yeah. Kim Clijsters, who who gave birth and then came back to playing professionally. And in the case of Serena, she came back and smashed it and still won titles. Um, yeah. But but on that question, sort of, how hard have you seen it? You know as a decision and also impact those, those female players, mental health. And you also talked about one really eye opening part of, of the pod, which, which I, which I took a lot from was, was your story about, um, Giva mentor, who's an England international netball player who decided to have her eggs retrieved, but had to request permission from her club to do so. Now, I mean, I really don't really have a good question to follow up, follow up with that, but, but just explain <laughs> that story and why it could have a really big impact on, on Giva's mental health. Yeah. Um, I think it's, um, that that was really shocking story as well like Jeeva is um my favorite player she's a goalkeeper like I am I've been watching her forever she's you know been to five Commonwealth games she's an absolute machine in the game and and just to see this kind of personal story this other side of her life and this this quest she's now on to be able to come a mum um and you know having her eggs frozen I thought that was so fascinating to me because I just saw her as an athlete and you kind of almost forget that 
she she is going to want to have a life after the game you know she's I think she's 36 now and and she's you know she doesn't want to retire yet and I hope she never retires because I love her but um she will one day and and you know she she wants to have the option of being able to have a baby and um just the fact that it's so difficult for her to do that both in terms of practically having to go through this invasive um procedure to to make that make sure that that's an option for her and also the fact that that logistically in terms of having to get permission having to find time in like a hectic international um athlete schedule to actually be able to do that and um I think that that's uh something I hadn't thought about and something that should just be made easier for players to do and again to have those conversations earlier because in the netball scoop article where they first interviewed Jeeva she talked about how she wished she'd known this earlier because you know she's she's mm. having her eggs retrieved now at 36 like if she'd been told this 10 years earlier maybe she would have had her eggs received uh, retrieved at 26 which meant she would have had healthier younger more viable eggs so surely players should be given that option so they then don't have to be in the position that Jeeva's in now or don't have to make that choice you know, earlier in their career, maybe they want to keep playing, but they will also want to be able to have um, have the option to have a child. And, and it, it stresses me out because it's just annoying that this is something that male athletes don't have to think about ever. Um, mm. And it's such a huge thing that can completely upend a female athlete's career. And also added to that, the fact that female athletes don't necessarily have that kind of security for life after the game um compared to you know the top end male athletes who will get lucrative deals who may have been paid a lot more anyway during their career so they'll be kind of set up for life um mm. netballers will not be set up for life after the game they will need to get jobs a lot of them have jobs whilst also playing elite sport and there aren't that many kind of opportunities of where to go next so to have that and then to also have the problems of can I now start a family? Have I left it too late? Have I damaged my body by being an elite athlete? That is just such a huge additional burden to place on on these women. And it's going to be off-putting, first of all, for young talent coming through. And it just it just needs to be improved. And I think the key is is research and having people on this because I think there are solutions. If this was a problem that that male athletes were facing, we would have solutions by now. So it's just about putting the time and the money into it. Mm, 100% agree and I think it, it, listening to that pod was was really eye-opening for me it was really educational for me um so I, I would 100% recommend anyone go listen to it um if they want some education about about fertility and, and how it affects female athletes just just as a final question Nat um mm -hmm. if there are any girls listening to this who might be thinking of taking up netball or want to give it a go what would you say to them and, and how would they go about it um first of all I would say definitely join a netball team because it'll be the best thing you ever do it's like instant group of friends there's kind of this um old archaic ideas about netball and maybe you think the girls will be cliquey or bitchy or whatever and that's never been my experience I've always had really really welcoming warm teammates who have welcomed people from all different walks of life from all different levels of ability you don't have to be brilliant at netball um you can join um, you know, social teams, you can join back to netball teams. If you haven't played since school and you can't even remember the rules, that's fine. They can teach you. They're not hard. Um, so yeah, I think if, if you're looking for that, for that outlet, I would go on the England netball website and they have this thing called a club finder where you can, um, find local teams that are close to you. And some of them are pay as you go. So you don't have to like make a commitment to join a team. If you think that feels too intense or too much, um, yeah, too much of a commitment. You can just rock up, pay your two pounds, have a little training session, play some netball with some nice ladies and then go home and then see if you like it. So I would definitely recommend it. It's been it's been a huge and massively beneficial part of my life. Well, I think that's all we've got time for on this episode of the Just Checking In podcast. I want to say a massive thank you to Natalie for being my special guest on this episode's pod and for checking in with me. I hope this pod's been an educational as well as enjoyable listen for all you Ventus tuning in. Remember, if you like what you've heard, please give this a share on all the usual social media channels. Tell your friends or work colleagues about it, or if you're feeling very generous, write us a review on iTunes. We hope to check in with you again very soon, and remember, it's always okay to vent. <laughs>